You are listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church in Louise, Texas. Thank you for listening. Go ahead and have a seat. Father God, as we open your word this morning, I pray, Lord, that uh, you would illuminate your scriptures, that you would touch our hearts and our minds and our souls, Lord, that you would speak to us about the grace, the love, and the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for those, if there's any, anybody in here who doesn't know you, Lord, that you would stir in their heart. Lord, and for those of us who, who do know you, who, who do have a relationship with you, Lord, I, I pray that you would just draw us in, that you would uh, help us to see that the love that was displayed on the cross was a love that knows no bounds. We're grateful for that. Again, Lord, just open our eyes to what it is you have to say to us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and uh, open up. We're going to be in John chapter 3, verses 16 through 21 uh, this morning. Uh, if you're new with us and you've not been with us before, right now we're going through the book of John. Uh, the book of John is an excellent uh, way to understand who Jesus is. John really wants us to see Jesus for who he is. Um, and, and part of this verse is verse that we're going to be looking at. They're, they're probably the most popular verses in all of Scripture, uh, John 3.16. But what's really important about, about this is, what do you think about when you think about God? For many people, we imagine some, they, they imagine some kind of grandfather-like figure sitting in the heavens, right? Who's happy when you obey his laws, and, and he wants to smite you when you disobey, right? Or others think that he's a genie, Right? That, that he's ready to grant your every wish. All you have to do is simply ask, and he's there to grant those wishes for you. He simply exists to serve us. And still others believe that there's no God at all. And none of those are a biblical understanding of who God is. So what is God like, and how can we know what he is like? The only way for us to know what he is like is for him to reveal himself to us. And the good news is he has revealed himself to us through his word. And we are blessed in the fact that he has done that, that he has shown us who he is. He's revealed the, himself to us through his word and through Jesus Christ. And what does the word tell us about who God is? Well, the word of God tells us that God is love, that the driving force behind who he is and what he does is his love for his creation. But when we think about God's love, we don't need to think about it in some kind of cultural or popular sense. We don't need to think about a love that we have for our children or the love that we have for our spouse or the love that we have for others. Those are mirrors of God's love, but they are, not, they are far from being God's love. See, God's love is a perfect love without any fault and without any failure. God's love is perfect and holy and just. And this morning we're going to look at the scripture that conveys God's love to us. And as we look, we're going to see a few things about God's love that we need to know. God's love is not fickle. God's love is not trite. God's love is not fleeting. God's love is perfect, holy, and readily available. John 3.16 is probably one of the most well-known verses in all of Scripture. It's on bumper stickers, t-shirts, necklaces, jewelry of all sorts. Even football players painted on their eye black, right? John 3.16. For most of us, this was the first verse that we memorized. It has been used to remind us that God loves us, and to show others that God loves them as well. Not only that, but it's an important statement in the Bible because it is what Martin Luther calls the gospel in miniature. 
It's a little miniature representation of the entire gospel of God in just a few short statements. And yet, unfortunately, the meaning and impact of this verse can sometimes become dull to us. We can become desensitized to it. Not because we don't believe that it's true, but because we hear it all the time or we know it. We simply agree with it without giving it much thought at all. But the revelation of God's love for his creation is majestic. Right? It's amazing. It's awe-inspiring. And also, oftentimes we stop at verse 16. We go, that's good enough. When the following verses, 17 through 21, are just as important as verse 16. I pray that as we study these scriptures this morning, that we will have new eyes, that God would speak to us differently, that we would have fresh eyes. So before we dive in, let's pray. Father God, thank you again for your word. Thank you for revealing who you are. Thank you for the love that you have shown us, the grace that you have given us. And Lord, I pray again, as we look at these verses that are familiar to many of us, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see something fresh, to see something new, to see something amazing about who you are. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So John 3.16, it says this, For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So the first thing we're going to look at is God's love. But before we dive too deep into this, I want to let you in on a few secrets about the original languages, the Greek and Hebrew, and specifically today for Greek. In the Greek that this New Testament was written in, which is called Koine Greek, there's going to be a quiz, so start taking notes. Um, They didn't have quotation marks. Right? They didn't have any type of stylizing when it came to writing the, the words. They just wrote them out the way that they wanted to. They didn't have red letters like you see in many Bibles today. They didn't have any punctuation, so sometimes they're guessing at punctuation. So when the people who translate these Greek words into English are doing so, they have to make decisions. They make stylistic choices. Well, here in these verses, we see one of those stylistic choices. Most English Bibles, if you have one of the red letter editions, uh, John 3.16 through 21 is in red letters. That choice was made many years ago and is still followed in most English translations today. However, most scholars, uh, again, people way smarter than me, and theologians, don't believe that this is actually Jesus talking to Nicodemus, but rather John commenting on the conversation that Nicodemus and Jesus just had. Now, there are specific reasons why they believe this, and it has to do with a lot of grammar and syntax and phraseology, but it also has to do with the fact that the, the uh, crucifixion is seemed to be talked about in the past tense, like it's already happened. I say all this to say that God's Word is good, that God's Word is perfect, that God's Word is inspired, and these stylistic choices are helpful, but they're not perfect. They're good, but they're not inspired. Just like your chapter divisions and verse divisions in your Bible, those aren't original to the text, but they are helpful. Regardless of if John's commentary is, if, if this is John's commentary on what Jesus was talking about, or this is Jesus' actual, actual words, the truth remains the same. Okay? So don't get bogged down or overwhelmed that I told you something that you may not have known. Okay? The truth is still there whether Jesus spoke it or John is writing it. That's the truth right there. Now, there's a simple word at the beginning of this statement that sometimes we overlook, and it's that word for. That comes right after Jesus is explaining to Nicodemus about what he came to do. 
So if we look back just a couple of verses at 14 and 15, we see this, that Jesus says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now we talked about this last week. The Israelites were in the desert, and they were wandering around. They were mumbling, and they were grumbling, and they were ungrateful because they were ungrateful. They're people. People will be people, right? And so God sends a judgment upon them. And he sends these venomous snakes to come and, and bite the people. And the people repent and they go, oh my goodness, we were wrong. We were wrong. God save us. And so God provides a way of salvation through the bronze serpent. This, uh, this story is found in Numbers 24 if you want to go back and read it. It's only like six verses long. But they have to look to this bronze serpent for salvation. They have to cast their eyes. They have to raise their eyes and look at this bronze serpent if they're bit by a snake to be saved. See, God desires to save people. He wants people to have eternal life. But the only way to have eternal life is to look at the gift of the Father. The only way to have life is given through the gift of the Father. So because God wants people to have life, he provides that life through the giving of his Son. And Jesus uses his life as an example that was talked about years ago in the desert. God loves his creation, and God shows us the extent to which he will go to provide that salvation to the creation. He provides salvation to us if we look to Jesus. Only looking to Jesus can we get salvation. Not through what we did, not through what we earned. It's only through looking to Jesus and believing in him. Just like those Israelites in the wilderness They were bit by those venomous snakes, but they were saved by looking to God's salvation. They were all infected, just like we are. We are infected with the venom of sin. And the only cure, the only remedy, is to look to Jesus. And we can ask the question, why does God love us? Because most of the time, we are unlovable. And we can pontificate or we can speculate and we can bloviate, but the reality is God loves us because he loves us. It is completely unearned. And God's love is the only kind of love that is truly unearned, wholly unearned. I mean, I remember when I was chasing after my wife, Corey, I wanted to earn her affection, right? I wanted to earn her love. I wanted to prove to her that I was worthy of being loved back. And we do that with our kids too, right? We try to earn their love by buying them things, by blessing them with things. We try to earn their love. But God's love isn't like that. He loves his creation simply because he loves it. He loves his creation simply because you exist. And this is demonstrated by John's use of the word world here. We can miss the glory of this word in John. Because most of the time when we think about about God loving the world, we think about God's capacity to love. That the world is so big. There are so many people in it. God's, God must be big if he is to love the world enough. But what's really going on here is much more glorious. When John talks about the world, he is talking about the fallen world. He is talking about the world in rebellion. He is talking about the wickedness of the world. He is talking about how bad the world is. Yes, God's love is wide. And he will accept any who turn to him. But what's most astounding is the depth of God's love. The depth of God's love. That God would stoop down to love a creation that hates his guts. That God would have compassion on people that shout in his face, I hate you. God 
would save people that would rather live in their sin and in their rebellion and their wickedness. And that's what's so amazing about God's love. It's deep. There is nowhere you can go where God's love can't reach you. Even the most wicked, the most vile and rebellious human can receive God's love if he repents and believes in Jesus. Paul puts it this way in Romans 5.8. He says this, But God proves his own love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love is the backdrop by which he does everything. God loves this rebellion, rebellious world. God loves you in your rebellion. That is the great news. God's love is not a thought experiment. It's not a philosophy. It's not sentimental. It's not a feeling. God's love is demonstrated. God's love is self-sacrificing. God demonstrated his love to us. It is tangible. It is sacrificial. For God loved the world in this way that he gave. That he gave his one and only son. This is a problem we have with our, our, our time and in our culture. Is that for many, love is fleeting. It's something that just happens. You can fall out of love. Love is mostly emotive, sentimental, or emotional, meaning that love is on the shifting sands of our feelings or how I feel like I'm being treated. Love is all about me, myself, and I. How do you love me? That's the way the world understands love, is that my love for you is dependent on how you love me. But we can only know true love when we learn it from God. We're going to look at these verses in a minute, but 1 John 4, 8 and and 4.16 tells us that God is love. That his very character, attributes, and demeanor towards his creation demonstrates love. God shows us what real love is. Love is not a feeling. Love is not an emotion. Love is not self-serving. Love is not selfish. Love is self-sacrificing. Love is something that you do. In the 90s, there was a Christian rock band that was pretty popular. Their, their name was DC Talk. And they came out of, with a song that said, Love is a verb. Love comes with action. Love is demonstrated. Love is a choice. I can tell my wife and I can tell my kids all day long how much I love them, but until I demonstrate it to them, do I really love them? God demonstrated his love for us. God showed us his love. Now in John 3.16, for many of us, we memorized it, for God so loved the world. But if you notice in this translation that we're using, the, the CSB, they translate it a little bit differently. They say, for God loved the world in this way. The word translated so in most of our English translations makes us think that God's love is quantitative. Meaning that we read, for God so loved the world, we translate it in our minds that God loved the world so much that he gave. But the Greek word here is not to, meant to think, make us think about quantitative, but qualitative love. How did God love us? He loved us so much that he gave. He showed us how he loved us. He didn't just give a little bit. He didn't just give the bare minimum. He gave a lot. And the gift wasn't small, it was huge. God didn't hold back his love from us. God never holds back his love from us. He gives us his greatest gift. And that 
greatest gift was Jesus. And this should strike us to our core. This should touch our hearts that what did we deserve? Nothing. We didn't deserve anything. But what did God give? Everything. God gave everything. That's love, that while we didn't deserve it, God did it anyway. That while we didn't earn it, God did it anyway. That's what love is. That's what God's love is. That's the kind of love that we are called to imitate. A love that is self-sacrificing. A love that gives all that we have, all that we are, and all that we hope to be. A radical love that loves those that despise us. That loves those who are unlovable. If we think back to Matthew chapter 5, Jesus tells us that, that you've heard it said that you should love your neighbor. But I tell you that you should love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. That's the love of God. God loves his enemy. And he loves his enemy so much that he sent Jesus to come and save his enemy. If we go back to those verses in 1 John where he talks about God is love, it should challenge us. 1 John 4.8 says this, The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. 1 John 4.16 says this, And we have come to know and to believe that the love that God has for us. God is love, and the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. And 1 John 4.19 says this, We love because he first loved us. God's love for us is demonstrated by the fact that he gave Jesus. Our love for God should be demonstrated by the actions that we give to others, that we love others, that we love like God loved us. So the question is, do you love people like Jesus loved you? Do you love like Jesus loves? That's not just a cute phrase. That is the heart of the gospel. That is the heart of being a follower of Jesus. Are you demonstrating love to the world? Do you love like God loves? That is what we are called to do if we are followers of Jesus. And see, God does not hold back when it comes to the love of the world. God gives good and perfect gifts to his children. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. In here, in John 3.16, we see this, that he gives his best gift to his children. That he gives the most important gift. He gave his one and only son. And this should remind us of Genesis 22. The echoes of Genesis 22, that Abraham was going to sacrifice his one and only son, Isaac. Now, Isaac was spared, but our father didn't spare his son for us. Jesus endured death. There wasn't a ram in the thicket to save Jesus because he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And why did God give Jesus? Why did God surrender Jesus to death? The simple answer is love. Because God loved the gift of Jesus is so great that we should not ever question God's love for us. Romans 8, 31 and 32 says this, What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also grant 
with him everything that he grants us. I want to assure you that God's love for you doesn't change because of your circumstances. Even if God feels far away, he still loves you. Even in the pain and the sorrow and the heartache, and that is too much for you to bear, he still loves you now. When you are in your darkest night, God still loves you. When you feel hopeless, when you feel abandoned and alone, God still loves you. The cross of Jesus is the assurance of the promise that God loved you then and he still loves you now. He gave the greatest gift to you then. Don't you believe that he will give you what you need now? All of our hope and all of our joy and all of our assurance that God loves us is demonstrated in the cross of Jesus. That he solved our greatest problem. He conquered sin and he conquered death and he assures us of life with him. Regardless of what has happened to us, what is happening to us right now, and what will happen in the future, we can rest assured that God demonstrated his love for us when he gave his most precious gift to us, the gift of Jesus. Here's what we have to remember. The promise of Jesus' sacrifice isn't something that we rest on just in the future that this is something that happened in the future, that our salvation is something that happens in the future. That is something that we can bank on right now. That is something that is real right now. That God loves you right here and right now. He doesn't love some future version of you. He loves you right now. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. If you believe in Jesus, if you have looked to the exalted one and are healed, God promises that we have eternal life. We have eternal life. But this eternal life isn't just an endless number of days when we die. That eternal life exists is right now, and it's about our quality of life right now and forever. Your eternal life is present now. You have been transformed into a new creation now. You have been made complete Now, you've been made whole because of Jesus' sacrifice. Now, you have the capacity to love Jesus and love like Jesus now. You've been made alive spiritually. You are now an eternal being. You have been justified now. You have been called now. If, if you believe, if you trust. And this isn't just a simple generic belief like most of our culture wants to do. Just believe in something and you'll be happy. There's only way, one way and one belief that makes you spiritually alive. and That is the belief in Jesus. And it's not just an intellectual understanding or confirmation. Oh, I believe that. Belief is something that you live out. Are you being conformed to the image of Jesus? Are you being shaped? Are you walking in his footsteps? Are you demonstrating love, mercy, compassion, and grace? Belief in Jesus is faith in what he's done and a commitment to what he is doing now. That's what belief is. On Wednesday nights, we're going through First uh, Peter. And this week we were in First Peter chapter 2. And I joked that all I was going to do this Sunday was to come up here and read this scripture because it's so powerful. 
and is true for all who are in Christ. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, it says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. For all of those who are followers of Jesus, for all of those who believe in Jesus, that's what we are right now. That's what we are right now. Not in the future, right now. Right now, you are a chosen race. Right now, you are a royal priesthood. Right now, you are a holy nation. Right now, you are a people for his own possession. Right now, you are to proclaim and praise his goodness. Right now, you have been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Right now, you are God's people. Right now, you have God's mercy. Right now, you are loved and cherished by the king of the universe. And right now, you are a child of God. If you believe. But what about those who don't believe? If eternal life is the reality for the believer right now, what is the reality for the unbeliever? What Jesus is going to tell us, or John's going to tell us, verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned, because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son. Isn't this comforting that Jesus came to save the world, not to condemn the world? God looked down on the world, and he saw the wickedness, and he saw the brokenness, and he saw the selfishness and the sin, and he says, I want to save that. I want to save that. So Jesus was sent to save it. And he had every right to come and condemn it. He had every right to come and cast judgment on it. He could have come in and wiped out everybody on the planet. But instead, Jesus came to pave a way to salvation. God's love for sinners caused him to send his son to save sinners. But not all are going to be saved. Some people get really upset that God doesn't save everybody. Why doesn't God save all people? It doesn't seem fair. But here's what we have to understand. No one deserves to be saved. The question isn't why does God save some and not others. The real question is why does God save anyone at all? For we are all wicked. We are all rebellious. We are all under condemnation. But God is patient with us. And this is why I can get so frustrated with some Christians that want God to rain down judgment on their enemies. Look, I'm disgusted with a lot of things that are happening in our world. I'm heartbroken over what's happening in Ukraine right now. But I don't want Putin to be murdered. I desire that Putin gets saved, that God rescues him, that God calls him out of darkness into light. But there are many who are just like, no, just, just do away with them. Let's wipe them out. That's not the heart of somebody who loves. We can be so quick to cast judgment. We can be so quick to condemn. Are there wicked people in this world that are doing wicked things? Absolutely. And if they don't repent, they will face the wrath of God. Undeniably. But should we desire that they get their just desserts? No. We should desire that they would be saved. That people would be saved. Love our enemies. And pray for those who persecute us. 
because we all deserved condemnation. But for the grace of God, but for his mercy, but for his love, we would be right there. Here's what we have to see in these verses. Until someone trusts and believes in Jesus, they are under condemnation. Meaning that at one point in time, you were under condemnation. I was under condemnation. Condemnation is our default position. It isn't until we are born again and place our faith in Jesus that we are no longer condemned. That is when we are transferred from death to life. Condemnation isn't a future judgment, just like salvation isn't a future judgment. It's a reality for those who are either in Christ right now or outside of him. So if you are saved right now, you are already saved. And if you're outside of Christ right now, you are already condemned. This isn't a a future reality. But it is also a future reality. If you die condemned, you stay condemned. If you die saved, you stay saved. So all those people that you wish or hope or think God should condemn, they were loved so much by God that God sent Jesus to die so that they could have salvation, that they could be brought out of condemnation. And it's so easy for us to forget that we were once just like them. Here's the great news about the love of God, that we can go from condemned to not condemned. That we can go from covered in sin and shame to being washed clean. That we can go from enemies of God to children of God. That we can go from living in darkness to basking in His light. God can remove judgment of condemnation right off of you, right now, because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. You can be made right in Jesus' eyes. You can be justified by the blood of Jesus. Anybody can, if they turn toward God and repent of their sin. Anybody. Nobody is outside of grace. That song we sang earlier, grace that is greater than all my sin. If God's grace isn't enough to save you, it's not a, if, if God's grace isn't enough to save the most wicked and the most vile, it's not enough to save you either. God's grace is greater than every one of your sins, than everybody's sin. But all of this, the saving that God does, is an act of God. It's nothing that you can do on your own. You can't be good enough. You can't earn it. It's a gift from God if you believe in Jesus. And if you believe in Jesus and you trust in what he's done, then you are no longer condemned. Romans 8.1 says this, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God's intention is that people are saved. That is why he sent Jesus. God wants to save sinners. God wants to redeem people. But not all people want to be saved. Not all people want to be redeemed. Not all people want Jesus. Not all people do. Just as God's love drives him to provide salvation for us, what we love drives us to either submit to God or live a life of self-indulgence. Many years ago, I used to train dogs. but y'all didn't know that about me. But I used to train dogs. And one of the things people would always struggle with is taking their dogs on a walk. Because what happens when a dog gets on a walk? They want to pull, they want to go, they want to drag, right? They want to. And so one of the things I taught people is that when you're walking your dog, what you want to do is you want to keep their nose off of the ground. Because where their nose goes, so goes their whole body. Okay? So if you keep their focus, and you keep them focused off of being off the ground, then you can guide them. Their nose goes, so goes they. 
It's like that for us. Except it's not where our nose goes. It's where our heart goes. What we love, truly love, will dictate what we do. It'll dictate where we go. Notice it's not what we say that we love, but what we actually love that drives us. And John is going to hit that pretty hard in these last three verses of our text today. Verse 19, it says this. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it, so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who loves or lives by the truth comes into the light, so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. So people react to the light in one of two ways. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Either they are drawn to the light of Jesus like a moth to a flame, or they scatter from the light of Jesus like a cockroach. That's what happens. When the light exposes, you either scatter or you're drawn to it. This is evident because of people's reaction to what they love. Do people love Jesus more than their sin, or do they love their sin more than they love Jesus? Because what they love, what we love, what I love is going to drive us. The light of Jesus has come into the world. His power and his presence and his prestige are all over the place. But unfortunately, many love the darkness more than they love the light. Why? Because the light exposes them. The light exposes evil deeds. The light exposes our selfishness. It exposes everything that we do that is an affront to God. And when our deeds are exposed, their selfishness and rebellion, it's painful. There's pain in the exposure of our sin and our shame, and our anger. And we don't want to be exposed. You see, humans like to think they're a lot better than they actually are. And it's easy for us to hide our sin. It's easier for us to hide our shame. We don't want people to expose it. We don't want it to be exposed because it's going to hurt. But when the light comes and shines on the skeletons in our closet, the truth is revealed. Either we're drawn to that flame, we're dr- or we're running away. We're scattered like cockroaches. We have to be honest. Even those of us who are followers of Jesus can shamefully admit that we love our sin. Why do we love sin? Because sin brings pleasure. Sin brings a temporary happiness. Sin brings me what I want, when I want it, and how I want it. But at the same time, we know that Jesus loves us more than our sin. That his surpassing and abounding love can conquer all of our sin. That love for Jesus, we should drive after, we should want and desire more because it brings satisfaction, it brings joy, and it brings wholeness. For those, of, uh, those outside of Jesus, they can't see that Jesus is better than their sin. They're blind to it. They don't recognize that the love of God, the acceptance and the grace is better than selfishness, that is better than pride, that is better than anger, that is better than gossip, that is better than slander, sex, and greed. They just don't see it. When we are outside of Jesus, we don't believe that the light is good. We don't want God to reveal our brokenness. We don't want God to reveal our rebellion. We don't want God to reveal our sin or our self-righteousness. We run from the light because we love the darkness. And then for some of us, God's love 
And God's grace is so persistent that it chases us until it's unavoidable. And when all of our wickedness is exposed, we see that there's no longer shame or condemnation and guilt, but rather love and mercy and grace. But coming to the light can be painful. But being exposed to the goodness of God, there's nothing better than that. There are some of us in here who are hiding some of our sin that are hiding our shame. And Jesus wants to expose it and say, your self-righteousness, your greed, your anger, your lust is not good for you, but I am good for you. I am the best for you. And if we love the truth, if we're chasing after the truth, and we live by the truth, we will be made new. We'll be born again. We will be transformed. Our desire to love the darkness will go away. And a light flip on, and we will love the light more than the darkness because we have been brought into his marvelous light. And if you belong to the light, if you have said yes to Jesus, it can be easy for us to think that we're better than those who are living in the darkness, that we're better than them. We can become self-righteous. I want you to know that there is no room for boasting at the foot of Jesus. You're no better than they are. This hasn't happened because you haven't been saved because you are better or more superior than somebody else. This has only happened because of the grace of God. This has happened because of God's great love, because of His amazing grace. You should never look at someone outside of God's light and cast your own condemnation on them. But for the grace of God, you would be right there with them. Notice in verse 21 it says this, but anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. The works of the one who has come into the light are not accomplished because of you. They are shown to be accomplished because of God. The belief that you have, the life that you have, the new birth that you have experienced was because God has opened your eyes. We can look at the sin of those around us and cast judgment and shame and condemnation on them or we can show them the love of Jesus. What separates people from God isn't simply their sin. It's their unbelief. People don't believe God is good. They don't believe that they can be forgiven. What I have done is too much for God to forgive me. They don't believe that their life can have meaning when serving God. I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. They don't believe. So they need to be saved. They need to be brought into the light out of their unbelief. When they believe, their sin will be exposed and God will work on them. God will cleanse them. God will purify them. God will change their hearts. They would change their desires. But before that happens, belief. First belief, then change. So I want to ask you today, where are you today? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you truly believe that it is in Him alone that you can have salvation? Are you living a life submitted to his lordship? That is the call of Jesus, to believe in him, turn your eyes upon him, follow in his footsteps, be like him to everybody. And Christian, no doubt, don't doubt Jesus' love for you. He loves you tremendously. Sometimes it feels like he's far away, but he still loves you. He loves you more than you can imagine. He loves you so much that he spread his arms apart and died for you. In uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible, which is a fantastic resource for adults and children alike, Sally Lloyd-Jones writes this. She says, talking about Jesus' crucifixion, So you are a king, the Roman soldiers cheered. Then you'll need 
a crown and a robe. Then they gave Jesus a crown made of thorns and put a purple robe on him and pretended to bow down to him. Your majesty, they said. Then they whipped him and spat on him. They didn't understand that it was the prince of life, the king of heaven and earth who had come to rescue them. The soldiers made made a sign, our king, and nailed it on the wooden cross. They walked up a hillside, or walked outside the city. Jesus carried the cross on his back. Jesus had never done anything wrong. They were going to kill him the way criminals were killed. They nailed Jesus to a cross. Father, forgive them, Jesus gasped. They don't understand what they're doing. You say you come to rescue us, people shouted. But you can't even rescue yourself. But they were wrong. Jesus could have rescued himself. A legion of angels would have flown to his side if he'd called. If you were really the Son of God, you could just climb down off that cross, they said. And of course they were right. Jesus could have just climbed down. Actually, he could have just said a word and made it all stop. Like when he healed the girl, stilled the storm, and fed 5,000 people. But Jesus stayed. You see, they didn't understand. It wasn't the nails that kept Jesus there. It was love. That is the love of God, that he would give his one and only son for you. I pray that you would know that love, that you would seek that love, that that love would be made real to you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for everything that you have given to us that we don't deserve. Lord, help us to realize and recognize that it's only by the grace, only by your grace, that any of us can say that we love Jesus. Lord, I pray if there's anyone in here who doesn't know you, that you would stir in their heart a desire to chase after you. Lord, and as we enter into this time of singing a couple of songs of reflection, a song of invitation, Lord, I pray that all of our hearts would be stirred to love you more. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and stand up, guys. Thanks for listening. To find out more information about our church and ministries, visit fbclouise.com. Thank you.